Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. (laughs) Welcome back to the show, everyone. Dad? (laughs) Is that you? Uh, Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hello. Oh, we're so excited to be here today. So excited. Always. Yeah. Always happy to have you join us. Well, there's been a few times. Oh, wow. I'm just trying to make it special. Oh, okay. You know? (laughs) Sometimes we're not happy, but today, on this day. You'll never know. When it's true. (laughs) When it's true. But this one, we mean it. This one, we're really excited. Damn, that throws back to my server days. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, so happy to see you. <laughs> sometimes you were, but sometimes you were like, I just wish I was anywhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> anywhere else in the world. It was a like, lava pit, anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, uh, oh, my favorite customer is here. And that'd be like exciting. And then I'd think, oh my God, I have a favorite customer. Like, oh, what is, what happened? I'm here too often. <laughs> how did I, How did it come to this? <laughs> well, we're all rested up after 
Max and Carlotta, <laughs> the 300-year-long episode in two parts. Uh-huh. Each part somehow 500 years long. <laughs> <laughs> somehow. Uh, but uh, but still still awashed in their um, in their story myself. But mm-hmm. uh, thanks for coming back. Um, well, wow. <laughs> I mean, not that you wouldn't have. Um, but what's exciting, I think, is that uh, we we never set out to do this. No. But we have two two parters in a row. I know, wild. Um, which I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anybody cares. Uh, but uh, and 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 I I don't particularly. We we like to keep them as tight as we can. But sometimes you just gotta you just gotta give the full story. So true. And it takes a long time. And we never know until we start researching. Mm-hmm. We're halfway through, and we're like, oh my god. We were talking about getting too close. Um, yes. Like with Max and Carlotta, or yes. it's happened before. I think it happened to me with like Jackie and Rachel Robinson and stuff. Where you just get right. to, you just like really fall in love with them, and you're like, I just have to tell everything, or else you don't understand. Yeah, that but was you're me like, and I Max. can't, I can't read you a 500 page book right now. No, <laughs> this no. is meant to be a nice, quick, well, fun thing. <laughs> like with Max and Carlotta, if y'all listened to that episode or those those last two episodes, that was. You know, when I started researching that, it was a lot of little articles, mm-hmm. you know, a page long each that were just like, oh, this guy was duped into being the emperor of Mexico and then he died and his wife went crazy. The end. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting story. And then I made the made the mistake of finding the 700 page long book about yeah. them and just got <laughs> sucked in. You're like, this is incredible. And I was like, I'm, I feel, I know these people now. I feel yeah. like I, I'm responsible for telling their personal stories. Anyway, we're getting into it again. Oh, no. I don't need to do that. Part three, <laughs> our run. own impression of Max and Carlotta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, our commentary yes. on our own episode. No, no, no. No, we're here with a totally, complete, very, very different uh, two-party here right but, now. But before we move on from Max and Carlotta... Um, you know, sometimes in our episodes, we do ask you guys questions. Yeah. We're like, oh, we don't know the answer to this. Right. And you come through nearly every time. That's true. And so I think that we should go and check our answering machine. Just answer the question. So Kate B. on Instagram, she's at Kate probably, reached out and said, Really love the podcast. My brother is a historian with the National Battlefield. Cool. At Matt Borders Books, if you're interested. And my dad is an archaeologist. But your flings with history are way more interesting than anything I've heard from them. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, dad we and just, brother. We just called her out. <laughs> I was listening to Maximilian and Carlotta of Mexico, part one, and I can help with the dowry questions. Oh, Thanks, good. dad. What you're thinking of where the bride's family gets money is called the bride price. Oh. Usually a dowry or a bride price was given, but some cultures did both. Hope that helps. Oh, that is that is interesting. That is um, interesting. Because we had talked about a dowry is usually what the bride's family gives the groom. Right. Like, please, I will pay you to take this girl off my hands. <laughs> <laughs> but then sometimes the groom's family will give the bride's family money, too. And right. I was like, which one's which? So, yeah. Bride price is that one. Bride and then price. I did look it up. And there was also there's also a dower, which is money that usually the groom will settle on his bride so that she has something to inherit um, okay. when he dies. So no matter how the inheritance works out with properties and like the son getting it or whatever, like she still has something to live on once okay. she's a widow. So nice. there's a dowry, a bride price and a dower. That's too many things. That's a lot of things. Yeah. 
I don't think we got any money when we got married from no. either of our families, except well, for our wedding gifts. Except for our wedding gifts, yeah. Which were amazing. Yeah, which were phenomenal. And, <laughs> and the uh, wedding. I think that's still to this day. Of course, <laughs> the wedding. Also... <laughs> yeah, and... Uh... And and a, and a couple of bailouts uh, on hard times. That is true. Uh, Some our families have been great, times. but there was no settled yeah. transaction like here uh, for is our marriage. <laughs> your your parents never came to me and said, "Thank you for marrying our oh. daughter." Here's a lump sum, <laughs> and you know they still can. I'm saying it's not too late. Uh, <laughs> it's never too late for a bride price. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, thank you, Kate. That yes, is very thank helpful. Thank you, Kate, and 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 Kate's dad. And Kate's dad <laughs> and Kate's brother. Yeah. But today's episode, totally different very <laughs> from Mexico. Different. Very, very different yes. from Mexico Carlotta. Unless you live underground with the mole people, <laughs> you probably know the name George Lucas. Yeah. And his most famous work, Star Wars. But there's another name that made Star Wars the beloved film that we have today, and that's George's wife and the movie's editor, Marsha Lucas. Um, she was over George's shoulder during much of his career, helping bring emotional life to his characters and storylines, but Marsha rarely gets a mention when people talk about the phenomenon of Star Wars. So I think we should find out about the unsung hero of a galaxy far, far away. Sounds exciting. Let's yeah. go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Now, a lot of this comes from Michael Kaminsky's Secret History of Star Wars. Um, he wrote, like, the most complete biography of Marsha Lucas that exists. Wow. So thanks, Michael Kaminsky, for your work. Marsha Griffin was born in 1945 in Modesto, California. But Marsha's dad was in the military, so they bounced around a lot until her mother and father divorced when she was two. Mm. And Marsha and her sister lived with their grandparents in North Hollywood while their mom got a job as a clerk at an insurance company. Her dad remarried lived in Florida and did not really contribute financially to his first family. And Marcia said this time, quote, wasn't a sad, bad time, but was economically very hard for my mother. And when Marcia went to college, she chose to go to night school so that she could work at a bank during the day and contribute to her family's income. Marcia's boyfriend at the time worked for a Hollywood museum, and he wanted to hire her as a librarian to catalog all this movie memorabilia. Mm -hmm. But all the librarians had to register with the state of California in order to be hired. And then California sort of determines which library you're going to work at, I guess. So instead of sending her to the movie museum her boyfriend worked at, the state sent her to the Sandler Film Library, which was looking for a film librarian with no experience. It paid less than her day job at the bank, but she took it anyway. Dale Pollock, in his book, Skywalking, The Life and Films of George Lucas, says, quote, it was hard work. Marcia took orders for film footage that producers required, such as shots of a 1940s Ford turning left on a country road at night. And if the material fit the scene, she ordered the required negative prints, which was a super highly technical job that Marcia actually immediately grasped. She also found herself drawn to the instant gratification of editing. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, imagine that. I mean, we, we're talking the 1960s. Yeah. Trying to go through a library of real film, physical film, and like, hang on, let me just real close, let me look at this tiny little picture and see if that's a Ford 
turning uh-huh. left on a country road at night. Ah, oh, damn it, it's turning right. How about this one? Oh, Shit. it's on a city road. It's daytime. How about this one? A Pontiac? God damn it. <laughs> you know, like, right? now I can just type it in to a database online. Easy. yeah. And it, and it still doesn't come up, but... <laughs> At least I don't have to physically go through all this shit. Right. I mean, that's such a huge, like, I mean, to me, it sounds very tedious job. Um, But she was very good at it. Yeah. I'll say I've been freelance video editing Mm -hmm. since college, and I love it. It's Mm -hmm. so much fun. I totally get what she's talking about. Yeah. It's puzzle making, and it's fun. But I cannot imagine having to sort through all these reels of real film. Oh, yeah. It was always digital for me. Yeah. If I was ever going to edit, it would have to be digital. Yeah. If you were giving me all that physical stuff, uh-huh. I'd be like, go, I would go mad immediately. <laughs> I would just be like, <laughs> I cannot even look at this. Now, yeah, this is, as you say, this is in the mid-1960s that Marsha's doing this. And this is a time when pretty much every job in film was male-dominated. As Michael Kaminsky points out, quote, she was lucky she was in editing in the first place. Most film-related positions, such as camera or lighting, were quite literally all-male. Film editing, since the birth of the medium, was the one area where women were allowed in, since it was initially thought of as a task comparable to sewing or cooking. Yet, most professional editors were nonetheless men. I just realized that nobody could hear my eyes roll. (laughs) Maybe you could, I don't know. But look, this reminds me of cooking, actually, because... Mm -hmm. Cooking was always expected to be done by the woman at home, and yet all the professional cooks right, were men. Right, right, right. Just like true. that. Mm-hmm. If you're getting paid for it, you must be a man. Right. But if it is unpaid labor, then it must be a woman. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Marsha had worked her way up to assistant editor. She knew that commercial editors could make as much as $400 a week, which is enough to make a stable life. And that was kind of her goal. She just wanted to be financially secure. I mean, again, she grew up with very little. So that was kind of her main thing was like, I just want to make enough money to not be worried about money anymore. So that's where she was kind of trying to get to. And Marsha said, quote, I thought I was a tough cookie, but I didn't realize what I was up against. She was told women can't be editors because they couldn't lift the heavy cans that the film reels came in or handle the foul language that male editors oh use. Oh, Too God. sensitive. My ears. And Marsha was like, fuck that and fuck you. <laughs> and she kept at it. She said once, quote, I would have cut films for free because I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And, you know... That right there just makes me a little sad because if she didn't like the job so much, it's really likely that all this misogynistic bullshit would have like totally run her out of the field completely and we would have a shitty Star Wars today. Oh. Imagine that. A shitty Star Wars. (laughs) How different would the world be without Mm. Star Wars? I don't know what I would do on Wednesday nights now. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) For real. I mean, Wednesday night at 8 p.m. We'd be sitting down with dinner to watch TV and I'd be like, I feel like there should be something on right now. But But I just don't know. Nothing's coming to mind. Oh, well, it's like there's a hole in the universe. (laughs) Now, there were some respected women in the editing world at this point, and one of them was named Verna Fields. She had worked in the film industry with her editor husband, Sam, in the 1940s and 50s until he passed away from a heart attack, which I could say also as an editor, I totally get that. (laughs) I just sat there with my veins bulging out of my head, screaming at no one, you know. (laughs) He died of a film-induced heart attack. (laughs) So Verna ended up building an editing room in her house so that she could work while her children were sleeping. And I just want to throw out there, I don't know many stories about successful male anything 
where they had to build an extra room in their house and work while their kids were asleep. It was just something I was like, I really admire that about her, that she's like, you know what? My husband is gone and I still need to make money, but I have children. What am I going to do? Both. That's what I'm going to do. Just a good reminder. A lot of success stories from the past relied on having another person at home to take care of your children and cook for you and clean for you and make sure you had somewhere to come at night and sleep and not get a heart (laughs) work induced heart attack (laughs) or something. Um, And women just didn't have the same professional women didn't have that person. They were also that person. Right, right. Because men were like, well, what what am I going to do? Watch the children? If I cook, I'd better be getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) So by the mid-1960s, Verna was actually teaching film editing at the University of Southern California. She was editing independent films for directors like Peter Bogdanovich. And she also worked for the U.S. government creating documentaries. And in 1967, she needed help sorting through all this enormous amount of footage that was coming in from President Johnson's trip to the Far East. Mm. Uh, she was making a documentary out of this for the government, and she needed a few assistant editors. So, like any good professor, she grabbed a few students from her graduate class and then called around to film libraries to find a few more. Marsha was one of them, and she was assigned to help Verna's student, a shy, lanky guy named George Lucas. George was also born in Modesto, California in 1944, but while Marcia was bouncing around and watching her mom work hard to make ends meet, George had a pretty stable home life. Um, his dad was a businessman who owned the largest stationery store in Modesto at the time. They went on to like sell like, office supplies, you know, pay, they were like the office depot of their time. Oh, okay. They <laughs> were like, of. get these laser cut pages. And George was like, right. lasers. Lasers, huh? I love that. <laughs> A laser blade, did you say? (laughs) Such a thing exists? But George's dad wanted George to come work at the stationery store with him, you know, when he graduated high school, and George was just not into it. And at first, he was all about becoming a race car driver. He was real into that. But only a few days before his high school graduation, he got in a serious accident, and he nearly died during a race. And that naturally made him lose interest in driving a race car as a <laughs> right. career. He was kind of like, maybe something less likely to kill me. Uh-huh. He was like, if only all this racing could be done like just in front of a big green screen. <laughs> and uh, and there was no real threat here. We just animated the cars. Yeah, but he was still determined not to work at that stationary office supply store. So he left home at 18 and he told his family that he would be a millionaire before he was 30. So he went to Modesto Junior College and he studied a wide range of subjects, including anthropology, before he ended up getting really interested in cinema, especially avant-garde films from directors like Francois Truffaut or uh, Federico Fellini and Jean-Luc Godard, right? All, mm-hmm. all the film school guys' favorite directors. Of course. Right? He got himself an 8mm camera and he just started shooting with it before he enrolled at the University of Southern California which was one of the earliest schools to have a program devoted to motion picture cinema. Also, fun fact, his roommate there was Randall Kleiser, who would go on to direct Grease. Hey, pretty cool. Shooby, shooby, shooby. Shooby, shooby, that's not a song. Yeah, my favorite song from Grease is shooby, shooby, shooby. shooby. Rock-a-doodle, zip-zap, shamalama-doob-dob. There you go. Love Grease. That was it. You, do, yeah, we could, you guys just heard Grease done on a podcast. I hope we don't get sued. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so George graduated in 1967, and he tried to join the Air Force, but he was turned down due to all of his speeding tickets. He is like, I drive fast, <laughs> even when it ain't a race car. Which I gotta say, if George Lucas had joined the Air Force in 1967, we also might not have Star Wars oh, today. Very true. You know, thank God he had all those speeding. Tickets. <laughs> right, speeding saves, saves cinema. <laughs> Everybody, if you don't speed, who knows? So. George, after not getting into the Air Force, George went ahead and enrolled at the graduate program at USC and started working with Verna Fields. And Verna knew George was the least experienced editor that she had, so she paired him with the most experienced assistant, Marsha Griffin. And George remembers that Marsha, quote, had a lot of disdain for the rest of us because we were all film students. <laughs> she was the only real pro there. <laughs> But Marsha hadn't graduated college, so she also felt really intimidated and intellectually inferior to the graduate students. Right. So I kind of wonder if the disdain was something that either she was kind of putting on to mask yeah. her own feelings of inferiority right, right. or if it was something that he put on her because he knew she was a pro. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Those kinds of perceptions are so tricky. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes you think like, I'm going to go in and like, I just want to look confident. I just want to not right. look like an idiot. Right. And you know, either you overshoot it or people have their own conceptions and they see you and they're like, wow, what an arrogant loser. Like, True. You know. And you make a good point too, going in and being like, I want to look confident. I'm probably one of the only women in the room. Yeah. But, you know, like that, that adds an extra layer too. And uh-huh. then being the only woman talking confidently to a bunch of dudes they're gonna yeah. have their own perception about what that means uh-huh. so but she might have walked in there like okay anyway i get paid so <laughs> move along children <laughs> oh god i can't believe i have to show these children how to work jesus you know. michael kaminsky in secret history of star wars says quote they seemed like an unlikely pair george shy and introverted and marcia bold and outgoing but dale pollock wrote that Quote, Marsha enjoyed being with George. He seemed so happy, humming and tapping his foot to the ever-present radio music in the editing room. She told a co-worker, I think George is so cute. <laughs> and he was, too. If you look up pictures, he's adorable. Sure, yeah. Total nerdy film yeah. guy. And Dale continues, quote, But Lucas was hard as hell to draw out in conversation. He might discuss the films he was working on, but rarely did he bring up personal matters. So Marsha did know more than George, but her job was to help him. So she was always looking over his shoulder, making sure he did everything right. And she would offer pointers, making her essentially George's first professional mentor. Mm -hmm. She said, quote, he was so quiet and he said very little, but he seemed to be really talented and really centered, just a very together person. Mm. And bit by bit, Marsha was able to draw him out of his shell until finally, after a couple of months... He asked her out on a date. Yeah. Get it together, George. She was cute. She was cute. Mm -hmm. George's friend, John Milius, who would go on to write the screenplay for Apocalypse Now, said, quote, she was a knockout. We all wondered how little George got this great looking girl and smart too, obsessed with films. And she was a better editor than he was. Speak the truth, John. That's hot. <laughs> that's hot. <laughs> I know. And I think George felt this. He was like, mm, that's hot. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like hot for teacher kind of, right? Oh, I could, yeah, but, totally. but also like, and it's not my me. teacher. Yeah. <laughs> She's like my age. She's like kind of my teacher, but just in like, just enough where that it's still okay for it to be hot. <laughs> hot for mentor. Hot for mentor. I like that. And yeah, though they did seem mismatched, Marsha's this 
extroverted optimist and George, this introverted, quiet, kind of pessimistic guy. It totally worked. George said, quote, Marsha and I got along real well. We were both feisty, and neither one of us would take any shit from the other. I sort of liked that. I didn't like someone who could be run over. There you go. And she also saw a side of him very few people ever did, saying once that he has, quote, a very childish, silly, fun side, but he doesn't even like me to talk about that because he is so intensely private. Which is funny to me, thinking, like, George Lucas would be ashamed of his childish side. I know, right? And I'm like, Star Wars is... At its core, like the greatest kids movie Mm -hmm. in so many ways. But I think, you know, when she said that, it might be early on. Oh, yeah, sure. Straight up like, no, I am an avant-garde filmmaker. I will make movies. Uh You know what I mean? And then later on, he's like, no, I want to make something fun. You do mature out of that. Absolutely. You know, I think that there's definitely something in your early 20s and the college years where you like... You want you want your intellect to be recognized, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you kind of grow up and you're like, all right. Everybody's got intellect to some degree. <laughs> I, I've I've got things that are special about myself. I hope people see them. But I also like, can I just entertain people? Can I have some fun? I really think that's true. Yeah. I mean, especially once you're getting into trying to sell movies. Well, yeah. You know, you don't yeah. sell movies that people don't have that much fun watching. Right. And artistic movies can be very not fun to watch. Right, <laughs> They're right. very ponderous sometimes. As, you know, even if they're cool works of art, you know. Right. They don't sell. <laughs> you ain't going <laughs> to sell out no AMC with that. Honey. Grab the kids. I got the <laughs> night off. We're going to the, see the lighthouse. Oh, my God. <laughs> when George finally took Marcia to meet his family in Modesto at Thanksgiving, she overheard him telling his brother-in-law, Roland, quote, You know, Marcia is the only person I've ever known who can make me raise my voice. Mm. And Roland grinned and replied, That's great, kid. Congratulations. You must be in love. And I bet Marcia was like in the other room like, mm. George also felt that filmmaking, quote, becomes your life. And it was Marsha's life, too. That's one of the reasons our relationship works. We both love the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly true for the next few years of their lives. Um, And uh, uh, we can relate to that. Oh, yeah. I've related hard to this whole partnership. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Uh, I think you're more the George. Yeah, uh, probably. (laughs) More the Marsha. Because you're... uh, (laughs) A quiet pessimist um, (laughs) with a great grand story in your brain there somewhere that's just waiting to come out. Mm. And uh, and I'm just uh, I'm just trying to make my way as a woman in this world. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) Yeah. And you're Uh, doing great, honey. Hey, thanks. You know, sometimes you got to just walk into a room with confidence, (laughs) which I always do. (laughs) Uh, Well, how about we find out more about those two after we come back from these commercials? I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome back, everyone. So once the work on Verna Field's government documentary was over, George shot a short film called Electronic Labyrinth, THX 1138-4EB, which ended up winning a prize at the National Student Film Festival in 1968. His award from Warner Brothers was an internship to work on a film of his choice. I love that their their reward is like, come work for us for free. Yeah, right? <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> Any movie you like, we will definitely exploit your labor. You can choose whichever movie you want because for the other ones, we'll just go get another student to work for free and they'll take it. <laughs> So for George's film, he chose Finian's Rainbow, which is this musical fantasy starring Fred Astaire and Petula Clark. And it was directed by a young Francis Ford Coppola. He was fresh off his first theatrical success, a comedy called You're a Big Boy Now. <laughs> which I would love to watch that. <laughs> I am what not in the familiar world is it about? with this movie. <laughs> so George and Francis Ford Coppola became really close friends. So Coppola asked him to be a documentarian on his next project, Rain People. And Rain People was meant to be made with like a small crew traveling across the country. You'll know the spinoff movie Rain Man, which just focuses <laughs> on one of them, right? Is that right? I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> that um, is not right. Don't quote us. <laughs> um, so in late 1967, the crew, you know, is getting all together in New York. And Marcia decided to go too. She said, quote, 
It was so wonderful and romantic and emotional to see each other in New York because we had been separated for a long time while George was working on Finian's Rainbow. They Mm. had just hadn't seen each other. And then on a rainy February day in 1968, on the train on the way to the next filming location on Long Island, George proposed to Marsha. And they'd been talking about the future, and George wanted to be an independent filmmaker and move to San Francisco. And he said, quote, I was beginning to see where my life was going. Marsha's career was in Los Angeles, and I respected that. I didn't want her to give it up and have me drag her to San Francisco unless there was some commitment on my side. Okay, that's fair. Which is fair. That's good thinking. That is good thinking. He was like, Marsha's got her own thing going on, and I need to really give her a reason to not have that. Right, yeah. Do this instead. (laughs) (laughs) Marsha had been working on commercials and stuff like that while George was off doing these film projects, but thanks to his connections, she started to get more interesting offers. George's lifelong friend, Haskell Wexler, asked her to come to Chicago and assistant edit his directorial debut, Medium Cool. That was super exciting because this was a feature film and it would be the first one that Marsha ever worked on. But right around the time that that offer came in, George also asked her to come join him in Nebraska because the editor of Rain People, Barry Malkin, needed an assistant to help him sort through all this footage. Mm-hmm. Which again, we think about the days of physical film and sorting through canisters and canisters and canisters, miles of Insane film. Insane job. Yeah. So George mentioned Marsha to Coppola, and he agreed to hire her. But this was a tough decision for Marsha, because besides being her first feature film, Medium Cool also offered better money than Rain People. But then George told her, quote, Don't you want to be with me? Don't you love me? Oh, that is that is low. That's I manipulation. That. Right? I, I, that. I don't know if he meant to be manipulative in that. Mm-hmm. He might have really thought like, well, if you love me, wouldn't you want to be close to me? Like if you were given the option. Right. But you got to think about your words in these kind of contexts because you're basically saying, I'm not giving you a choice. Mm-hmm. Like if you choose the thing you want, then I'm deciding that it's because you don't love me. When that's, that's not the true. case. Yeah, I think it would, it would feel like now you're making me choose between you and, a, and this movie instead of this movie and this movie. Right. Like two jobs, which is very impersonal. Right. Um, but maybe it was just like a pro and con list or something where she's like, well, it's better money. But and he's like, well, but if you do this, we get to be together. And that's yeah. what we want. You know, it could totally be innocent. But it, I did hate it <laughs> when I, mean, I read it. I was like, Ugh. look, <laughs> that is a sweet thing to say. Well, uh-huh. but if you take this one, we can be close together. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. fine. But if you don't take this one, it must mean you don't, you don't love, love me. me? Is yeah. That's, that's don't manipulative. Don't you love me? <laughs> she said, quote, I was poor, right? Financial security was very important to me. I wanted to make it my own way. But we were engaged. We were terribly in love. So I decided to go. And she joined George in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, we don't have to be mad because the production for Medium Cool actually got delayed. So she ended up getting to cut that movie as well as Rain People and still got her very first feature film credit. Awesome. So she kind of got the best of both worlds yeah. with that one. Yeah, I, I wonder in this situation, you know, she's she's she got to do both. She got to work on George's movie and things got better. If George doesn't have an air of like... Oh, well, see, what were you making such a big deal out of it? It all worked out. He better not. (laughs) And she's probably thinking, oh, you dodged a fucking bullet, George, Mm -hmm. because if I didn't get that other movie, I'd be, ooh. (laughs) To the moon, George. (laughs) (laughs) And George also had tons of footage that he had shot for the documentary about the making of Rain People, which he was calling Filmmaker. 
They cut that documentary together as they also planned their wedding. And in February 1969, they were married. With Verna Fields, the woman who brought them together, in attendance. And they settled outside San Francisco in a cute little house that Marsha found for $120 a month. Damn. And I just want to sit and let that sit for <laughs> San one Francisco, second. $120 a month. <laughs> I don't. In I mean, it's San Francisco, laughable how low that is. Right now, I think in San Francisco, Netflix costs more than one hundred twenty dollars a month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George said of this time, "quote We were really happy and optimistic, and it didn't matter that the house was small. In our lifestyle, there were only two rooms we used: the kitchen and the bedroom. We were in either one or the other." Ow! ow. Oh, okay, right. George. There you go. Go get it, you two. But they were worried about money. George was working with Coppola to build their production company, American Zoetrope. But that wasn't making any money. It was just costing money. Mm-hmm. And Marcia didn't really have a job either. But at least things were interesting. Marcia described it, quote, There's never a dull moment. There's always 10 or 20 or 30 people around with somebody sitting down and playing piano in that corner of the room and some kids dancing in that corner of the room and the intellectuals having a deep conversation about art in another corner. Can I just say that was my dream situation. Right. Like when I decided I wanted to be an artist or be in arts in some way or another, be oh, a yeah. performer or something, That's that was always how I pictured That's what it. You want. I was like, I wanted like a million people around and they were all doing different things in different places and you could just kind of butterfly around. Yeah. Like I, that was my total dream. I want to go hang out in the in Andy Warhol's factory. Yeah. But without all the Chaos and drugs, drugs and eating disorders. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> you know? None of that. Stuff. Like just the cool parts. Yeah. This so, seemed cool because like a bunch of nerds like chilling yeah. <laughs> in a big house or guy, a little house. Guy in the piano in one corner of the room, people dancing in the other corner, people having intellectual conversations in another corner. My question is, what was happening in the fourth corner? What was happening in the fourth corner? <laughs> Speculation station. Hmm. Um Is that where all the drugs and sex was happening? <laughs> that's where all the drugs and sex were happening. It it was the sixties. Exactly. So, yeah. She was like, and I won't mention the fourth corner because, I mean. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's a little X-rated you know. over there. George the and I spent a lot of time. George, George always said, I only need two rooms and one corner. <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted this kind of loose, cool, bohemian vibe and to have this production company that reflected the, quote, new Hollywood mm-hmm. that they were part of creating instead of this uptight traditional studio industry that it was at the time coming out of the 50s. Yeah. You know, it was all mob bosses and <laughs> and business, you know? Yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, there was just totally this new Hollywood. All these artsy filmmakers coming up and being like, let's try something else. It's the 60s, man. Like, let's do something cool. Free love, Free love and arts and interpretation and, like, philosophy. <laughs> let's do it, yeah. Burn your bra. <laughs> Bob Dylan? Yeah. Slash Ringo? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, are you here? <laughs> Yeah, George said something like, I wanted like a film school vibe because in film school, it's very collaborative and loose and people are just like, you help me with this and then I'll come hold the boom for your thing. And yeah, yeah, it was just really chill. And he's like, I didn't know why Hollywood couldn't be like that. Exactly. So the first film they worked on was a feature length adaptation of George's student film, THX 1138. This was a tough production. George's mother said, quote, Marcia spoiled George terribly when he was making films. She'd bring him breakfast in bed after the nights he worked late uh <laughs> question diana yes she brought george breakfast in bed after his late nights editing mm-hmm. 
just uh, just thought that was interesting. Just yeah, I think cool. that's interesting too, given that you usually make breakfast, and I haven't had a breakfast in bed <laughs> after working late. Yeah, I work late, and then I get up and I make breakfast. <laughs> I know, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> Who wants breakfast in bed anyway? No, it's true. Crumbs. It's true. I don't want breakfast. You don't in want bed. to lay in bed with no. Spill your coffee all over your pillow. And I like cooking. This is the problem. I, I try to be like, well, you could make breakfast for me once in a while. But if you touch those pans, I'd be like, no, let me do it. I know. <laughs> I'm not a bad cook. <laughs> no, you're, you're a great cook. You, but you don't like it. But to. I don't like it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. George didn't like it either. That's another thing I feel. I was like, yes, George hates cooking, cleaning. Word, yeah. George. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so once the shoot for THX was over, George started editing the movie with Marsha assisting. And usually he listened to Marsha's opinions more than anyone else's. But they could not agree on THX 1138. Yeah. Marsha didn't really go for the abstract filmmaking that George was super in love with at this time. Mm -hmm. She told Peter Biskind in his book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, quote, I like to become emotionally involved in a movie. I want to be scared. I want to cry. I never cared for THX because it left me cold. When the studio didn't like the film, I wasn't surprised. But George just said to me I was stupid and knew nothing. Wow. Ouch. You're stupid, George. <laughs> Come on. I mean, that's stupid. I saw THX 1138 in college. Yeah? And it, I've it, never seen it. I don't remember it very well, but I remember it leaving me kind of cold. I mean, I remember not being, I remember thinking it was interesting and I was like, whoa, this would have been so crazy to see right. back in the day. But uh, yeah, it not, wasn't changing my life. Not something that stuck with you. No, no. Like yeah. I said, I don't remember a there thing about it. I mean, as Michael Kaminsky points out, quote, this is the essential difference in approaches between the two Lucases. George, more technical and graphic oriented, while Marsha, more character and storytelling oriented in her approach, mm. which makes for a great team, I think. Oh, um, yeah. To uh, eventually make Star Wars, which needed both. Man, I really am the Marsha. And I... the George. Uh-oh. I think I'm pretty emotionally I think concerned. we're both both. That's probably good. I think so. Hopefully, <laughs> I, I would like to not get divorced. <laughs> well, <So>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we're not exactly like Georgia Marsha. Uh, I mean, if we were exactly like Georgia Marsha, Marsha a lot of things would be different. Oh, my God. So we, we hit 30 a long time ago. <laughs> so true, there weren't no million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marsha was right in the end. THX bombed and American Zoetrope folded. She told Dale Pollock, quote, I never said I told you so. But I reminded George that I warned him it hadn't involved the audience emotionally. Mm -hmm. He always said, emotionally involving the audience is easy. Anybody can do it blindfolded. Get a little kitten and have some guy wring its neck. <laughs> okay. Damn. <laughs> First of all, weird example to Different, pull out of your pocket. I mean, uh, that's um, a very specific emotional involvement that right. I don't think Marsha was talking about. <laughs> in, the middle of, in the middle of THX 1138, someone should have strangled a kitten. <laughs> Jesus. That would have saved the movie. The studio would have loved it then. <laughs> she goes on to say, quote, All he wanted to do was abstract filmmaking, tone poems, collections of images. Mm. So finally, George said to me, I'm going to show you how easy it is. I'll make a film that emotionally involves the audience. <laughs> That'll teach you. That'll teach you, Marsha. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, great, you're going to make a good movie? That's fantastic. That That's all good. I've been wanting to do. <laughs> But at this point, Marsha wanted to think about starting a family. Now, George wouldn't even consider it until they had a stable income. 
Coppola was working on The Godfather at this point, which uh, went on to be a, a well-known movie. <laughs> <laughs> to understate the matter. <laughs> and so he would throw them gigs as much as he could. Marsha edited together numerous screen tests, and George, because he knew how to handle an animation camera, filmed the newspaper sequences. And then another one of George's connections came through. Michael Ritchie was making a movie with Robert Redford called The Candidate, and he wanted to hire Marsha as an assistant editor. For a few months, she was the sole breadwinner because although George was getting several offers to direct projects like Tommy and Hair, wow. he turned them all down because he really wanted to make his own movies, not someone else's. He even turned down a $150,000 offer to direct a movie called Lady Ice. I'm just thinking to myself about the two of them struggling to pay their $120 rent. <laughs> and then he gets an offer for $150,000. And he's like, yeah, I said no. And Marsha going, you said what now? <laughs> and she's cashing her $400 check like, you said what the fuck you said? I'm imagining uh, if George Lucas had done Lady Ice... Right. Instead of Star Wars, if we wouldn't be exploring the Lady Ice universe on That's Disney right. Plus today. Oh my goodness, the Lady Ice universe. <laughs> oh my god, they'd be like, oh my god, it feels like every week there's another Lady Ice movie coming out. <laughs> wow, oh, so-and-so got cast in another Lady Ice. Eventually, everyone in Hollywood is going to be cast in the Lady Ice-verse, the L-I-U. In that parallel universe, I wonder if they're happier or or, or not as happy as we are. <laughs> But George's attention was fixed on his idea for a coming-of-age movie with a rock and roll soundtrack called Another Quiet Night in Modesto. Classic. <laughs> Love it. Because Coppola had challenged George to write a more commercially viable script while they worked on THX, which I love. I love the idea of them making this, like, robot story and Coppola's, like, watching it going, mm-hmm, yeah. Hey, uh, George, have you thought about writing something maybe we could sell for money? Because <laughs> we kind of need that. Right, right. Also, I like that Marsha's been telling George this whole time uh -huh. to write a more commercially viable script, and it's nothing, but Francis Ford Coppola comes in and says it, All and oh, sudden, now it's a good idea. idea. <laughs> so, yeah, George had conceived the idea for this movie centered on his own experiences growing up in Modesto. Mm hmm but because the music licensing for popular songs was so expensive. It's so expensive. Incredibly expensive. And a top 40 soundtrack had never really been tried before this. Mm. Studios would not give him any financing. Like he he kept asking and they were like, we ain't giving you money for this. Sounds crazy. Right. So he borrowed money from basically everybody, his dad, like everyone he knew. And he got a 15 page treatment together and he changed the title to American Graffiti. And it took him nearly two years to get Universal Studios to agree to take it on. Coppola came on board to produce, which helped. But they were given a really low budget. So the shoot was really grueling and stressful. Marsha was getting her first feature editor chance with this movie because she was going to actually be the main editor, not uh -huh. the assistant editor this time. But the Universal executive insisted they bring in Verna Fields as well. As Kaminsky says, quote, he feared that George was just using Marsha as an excuse to cut the movie himself. Wow. And at first, George did sit in the editing room cutting with Marsha and Verna. But once the first rough cut was assembled, it was over an hour too long. Then Verna left 
the project because she had another job lined up. Speculation station, Verna was like, oh, it's an hour too long, huh? Well, um, you know, great. I've got this other movie I got to go do. So I got to <laughs> go. On her way out, she's like, dee doo doo Hey, you need me on that movie? Great. <laughs> I'll be right there. No, she really did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then George turned his attention to the music because, again, we're talking about a time when everything was super physical. So cutting a piece of music to a scene specifically yeah. was like an insane, a right. whole insane job on its own. So he was like, let me concentrate on that. So Marsha is the one who cut the movie down by over an hour. Wow. I, that makes me think of this old Pat Oswalt joke where he talks about how all these all these big directors of the time had female editors. Mm -hmm. And he was like, it was like these male filmmakers came in and just started spraying their film all over the room. Like, <laughs> yeah, here's all this movie I'm making. Here's all this film I shot. There's some, oh, it's all over the walls. And, <laughs> and then the woman comes in and says, all right, boys, you, you head out. I'm going to clean up this mess <laughs> and turns it into a movie. You and know? you went on and on and on. <laughs> uh, apologies to Pat Oswalt for <laughs> retelling that joke poorly. Uh, at first, Marsha did everything George told her to do. But the final result was crap because the movie just couldn't be cut down in a traditional way by like just removing a scene or a part of a scene. All these interlocking stories in the movie kind of threw everything off. So George said, quote, you literally can have a film that works at one point and in one week you can cut it to a point where it absolutely does not work at all. So he fully immersed himself in the sound design and Marsha just took over the movie editing. Mm -hmm. She cut it exactly how she wanted it. And the studio hated it. Ooh. But when American Graffiti was released, it got rave reviews and it grossed over $100 million at the box office. It was the biggest success of this new Hollywood crowd since Easy Rider. Mm -hmm. George and Marsha were overnight millionaires. Amazing. And George was 29 at the time, mm -hmm. fulfilling his promise to become a millionaire before he was 30. Love it. Kaminsky writes, quote, One of George Lucas's best films, Graffiti's entire existence might not have been were it not for Marsha's influence of expanding his tastes. I made it for you, he once told her. It was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Editing. Damn right. That's right. But people thought, just as Universal had, that Marsha was only on the project because of her husband. Verna Fields was given the lion's share of the credit for the great editing, which even she said, y'all are giving me too much credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I left the project like halfway through. <laughs> Um, but fortunately, Marsha was about to get out from behind her husband's shadow. And we will find out how right after this. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. 
You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. To the dark side. I mean, the show, oh. everyone. <laughs> Are we the dark side? <laughs> I don't know. Look, if you're going to imitate it's a recognizable voice from Star Wars, you've got Darth Vader, Yoda, or maybe Palpatine. Everybody else just sounds To horrible. the show, we welcome you back. How would you do that in Yoda? To the, to the show, we welcome you. <laughs> back to the show, we welcome you. That's it. <laughs> now we're going to get sued. There it is. <laughs> oh, I think I just heard a knock on the door. And oh, you're being we, served as a Hello. Oh, a cease and desist. Thank you very much. We will Thank not. You. We will do neither. <laughs> no, neither cease nor desist. <laughs> Disney. So, yeah, Michael Ritchie had been super impressed with Marsha when she worked on The Candidate. 
So when his friend, Martin Scorsese, was on the lookout for an editor for his first feature, a feminist road movie called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Michael recommended Marsha. Associate producer Sandy Weintraub said, quote, we knew her, we liked her, she was in the union. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean... That's that's all it takes. All right. That right there just sums up the movie industry. You're like, do I know you? Yes. Do I like you? Yes. Are you in the (laughs) union? Fantastic. You're on. Plus, Scorsese was looking to crew this movie with women so that it would be more emotionally honest. So Marsha was perfect in every way in Uh, this movie. I'll add friend of the show, Martin Scorsese. Right. Friend of the show, Martin Scorsese and his eyebrows. Just one of them. Just one eyebrow. Just the left eyebrow. The right eyebrow is kind of a dick. Right eyebrow. Was not very friendly. Very judgmental. Last time we spoke, just definitely gave the attitude of like, hey, I don't want to talk to you. Oh, my God. You guys, get out of here. I'm up here. I'm a a Martin Scorsese's face. (laughs) I get the first look at all the best pictures. I guess guess they do. Yeah. So you kids kids get out of here. You're nothing. You're nothing. You're trash. (laughs) The left eyebrow is like, hey, where where, where are you going to be so mean? Hey, these, these guys are just trying to be nice. They're just trying to be friends. We got room for friends in our life, don't we? Don't you remember? Don't you remember the time when Marty was nothing? Yeah. And we were nothing on yeah. nobody's face. I was never nothing. I was always destined for greatness. I'm Martin Scorsese's right eyebrow. <laughs> Do you know who I am? That's what he says at restaurants. A, yeah. I love, the, I love that one sounds tall and thin and one sounds short and stout. Classic. Yeah, well, a lot, of people, a lot of people project an image onto us and they hear our voices and haven't seen us yet. So that's the, thanks for stopping by, Martin Scorsese. Eyebrows. <laughs> eyebrows. <laughs> Friends of the show. Uh, so, yeah, they offered this job to Marsha. The eyebrows offered the job to Marsha. <laughs> and Marsha thought a little bit differently about this. She said, quote, Marty liked to edit, and I felt like I was getting hired to cut a movie, so I wouldn't cut it. So I'd let the director cut it. Oh. But I thought, if I'm ever going to get any real credit, I'm going to have to cut a movie for somebody besides George. Because mm. if I'm cutting for my husband, they're going to think, George lets his wife play around in the editing room. And George agreed with that. Mm. And that's something, I mean, she'll run into so many times working with George, yeah. is that everybody's like, oh, George probably edited that and just put Marsha's name on right. it. So people wouldn't know that he did it or something. Yeah. Um. But fortunately, Scorsese liked her. He liked her work, and he let her cut this movie. He did not cut it himself. She edited it, and he hired her again to edit his next movie, Taxi Driver, which went on to be a surprising commercial hit and for which she got a BAFTA nomination for editing. John Milius said, quote, She was a stunning editor, maybe the best editor I've ever known in many ways. She'd come in and take a look at the films we'd made, and she'd say, take this scene and move it over here. Mm. And it worked, and it did what I wanted the film to do, and I would have never thought of it. And she did that to everybody's films, to George's, to Steven Spielberg's, to mine, and to Scorsese in particular. Wow. And I love that, totally, thinking about her coming in just like, I don't know if she ever smoked, but I have her with a cigarette in her hand. (laughs) Just (laughs) watching- 60s and 70s, probably. Probably smoked. Just watching in total silence. Okay, that needs to go there. That needs to go there. That's your first shot. That's your last shot. And they were like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) How did you do that? Hey, she's pretty good, boss. (laughs) They they call Marty boss, by the way. His eyebrows. Well, of course they do. He's the one who puts them up and down. Yeah, we work for him. (laughs) But all this Scorsese work seems to have made George a little bitter. 
He would sometimes make jokes about how everyone thought he should be doing an important movie like Taxi Driver, but he wanted to make a B-movie for kids instead. But that's because he was working on the second draft of his space adventure movie titled, say it with me now, The Star Wars. Yeah, you didn't say it, did you? (laughs) You weren't expecting that little article at the front. Okay. (laughs) This was his homage to old samurai movies and action serials like Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. But even though Marsha didn't really vibe with the script, she was still George's biggest fan. Dale Pollock wrote in Skywalking, quote, Marsha's faith never wavered. She was at once George's most severe critic and most ardent supporter. She wasn't afraid to say she didn't understand something in Star Wars or to point out the sections that bored her. Only Marsha is brave enough to take Lucas on in a head-to-head dispute and occasionally emerge victorious. Thank God. Because I'm sure, since she was an editor, she's the one who was like, you know what you don't need? The the. Okay, it's freaking Star Wars. Let's just keep it that way. (laughs) Why we got this extra thing here? (laughs) And yeah, George really needed that because even he admitted he was not a great writer. He he talked about like, it's just so hard for me. I sit there and just bleed onto the page and it's terrible. You know, he's, he's the kind of guy who has a really good story in his mind. But when he actually has to get characters from one place to another, I think that's where he kind of breaks down. He mm. can't figure it out. Right on. So their heated disputes over creative choices were really necessary to get a good script onto the page. Like, for example, when he struggled with what to do with the character of Ben Kenobi, she suggested that he get killed off. That was, <laughs> she's I, like, kill him off. What do I do with this character? Ah, eh, fuck him. <laughs> what a He's sword. like, I got nothing Chop for him. Chop his head off. Yeah, she's like, hey, I got nothing for him. And she's like, well, kill him. I mean, that'll do something for a lot of characters because they yeah. care about him. It'll yeah. do something for the audience because they care about him. True. Spoiler alert for 1977's Star Wars, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) She continually reminded him that he needed to have emotional through lines and emotional resolutions. It wasn't just about like plot points and action sequences. Yeah, 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 yeah. These are people going through something. Sounds like some other current filmmakers could use Marsha in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, yeah, (laughs) I agree. Everyone needs a Marsha. Uh But even with all of the improvements to the script that she and a lot of his other friends and writing partners and creative collaborators and stuff helped him get to, only one studio executive greenlit the project. Alan Ladd at 20th Century Fox. So if we've really got someone to thank for there being a brand new Star Wars show every week right now. Uh, Alan uh, Ladd. Alan Ladd. Which is amazing, too, because, I mean, he was already working with Universal, so Universal already must have, you know, shot it down first. Right. And then he's shopping it around, and there's one guy reading it going, yeah. I'm telling you. Fucking space opera, baby. That's the future. I'm seeing midnight releases, Mm -hmm. people lined up outside the theater for weeks to get tickets. They're probably going to make costumes out of this stuff and walk around in it. I'm flashing forward to the future. I'm seeing a a, 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 Binks, Binks, something Binks, like a jar. (laughs) Oh, no. Jar, jar, Binks. (laughs) Yes. I see it. It's happening. (laughs) Oh, God. He knew. Alan Ladd, did you do that? Did you know, Alan? Did you know, Alan? And you didn't tell us? How much did you know, Alan? (laughs) But thanks to George's success from American Graffiti, he was given a much larger budget to shoot this Star Wars movie, even though it's still considered a low-budget movie at the Mm -hmm. time. It was bigger than he'd ever gotten before. 
So it was shot overseas in Tunisia and on giant sound stages in the UK. And like on one hand, this is the dream, right? This is what you're trying to get to the yeah. whole time you're making sh- little short films and right. stuff. But on the other, it was kind of a misery for George because he did have such a hard time connecting to strangers. So flying all over the world, meeting new people, having to work with new people, like really difficult for him. Um, The production was, of course, very complicated. It's funny, too, because they said the production for THX, they had a very low budget, so it was really grueling and stressful. And then he had a higher budget for this, so it was very grueling and stressful. (laughs) And I'm like, that's so true. It doesn't really matter how much money you have. It comes with different challenges. Well, because you're either trying to make what you love with Mm -hmm. resources that are more limited than Mm -hmm. your imagination, or you have the resources, but now there's all these other people who care about how you're using those resources. So they're butting in and changing things. Well, and the expectations are so much higher because they've sunk so much more of an investment. So yeah, he was exhausted during this production and he really missed his wife. Um, She did join him in Tunisia, but in the UK, he had to make do with writing her tons of letters and he taped her photo into his briefcase, which I, I think is so sweet. He would like open his case and be like, hey, honey, <laughs> and give her like a little kiss. <laughs> That's sweet. When he got home, the incredibly difficult production even sent him to the hospital with stress-induced chest pains. <gasps> but it only got worse from there. He saw the first cut from the original editor and he was horrified with it. It had no energy, and it was just flat. Mm -hmm. So he fired that guy, and he hired Marsha instead. But dumping an entire cut of a movie, again, in the world of physical film, meant that you had to uncut, physically uncut those reels, and tape everything back together in their original dailies, or like the, the raw footage that you shot on the day. Insane. It was truly an enormous task. And of course, they were on a deadline. Mm -hmm. So Marsha got to work on the final battle scene first so that the special effects could get started on that, too. And they hired a second editor, Richard Chu, who started working at the beginning of the film. (laughs) I love it. I just sort of imagine Richard uh, at the beginning and Marsha at the end, and they kind of meet in the middle, like Lady and the Tramp <laughs> like, with the spaghetti noodle. <laughs> she's on one side of the room with a long piece of film that she's going she's through. Just, 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 just He's on the other side going through, and they just get closer and closer, and ding! Bonk! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh didn't see you there. Oopsie. <laughs> so George also cut some sequences himself, and Paul Hirsch was hired as a third editor. There was just so much to do. But... One of the most complicated sequences to get right was the final battle scene where Luke took the trench run down to blow up the Death Star. You all know the scene. So good. Watch it. You got one on your tail. Uh, I can't shake him. Uh, Darth Vader flies in behind Luke, and now there's three TIE fighters coming in behind Luke, and he's like, use, you know, Ben Kenobi's telling him, use the Force. And he tears yeah. off his computer. And says, I don't need to describe the end of Star Wars to you. You've can seen I just it. say? Can I just say though? I did watch this scene yeah. while preparing this episode, uh-huh. and I was kind of laughing because at one point, right, Luke's in the front. Uh-huh. They're trying to shoot the little space, uh-huh. and he's got a couple of his rebels behind him. Uh-huh. And then there's the X, the X wings, the, the Tie Fighters, yeah. the Tie Fighters. I mean, yeah. and. <laughs> And they keep going, oh, no, I can't hold them. And then they get blown up. And I'm like, "What? Are you, how are you holding them if they're behind you? You're in a hallway. 
Look, you need to be you need to be behind them shooting them. <laughs> how okay. are you supposed to do you it? Tell me what are you how supposed the, to do? You tell me how the X-Wings work. <laughs> I don't know. I just <laughs> thought it was so funny that they were just literally flying in front like I can do nothing, but I'm also not holding Well, I them. think for part of it, I don't know, I haven't seen it in a few months, but I, I feel like for part of it, they were relying on other people to take out those TIE fighters while they were trying to, because they were like, I can't focus on the guys behind me. I gotta, right. I gotta fire right at the exact right moment. Yeah. To get this. I don't well, know. maybe that was it. Maybe. Look, maybe that. We're was gonna. It. Somebody's, I don't know. We're gonna have somebody's to watch gonna it. tell us. Oh, I know. I can tell you I'm that. Very right worried now. about doing a Star Wars episode. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> somebody's about to send us. Uh, somebody's halfway through a very long email already. Oh, yeah. Just like corrections <laughs> corner a one a. <laughs> yeah. Here's our six part series correcting our Star Wars episode. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> you thought Max and Carlotta was long. Oh no. Um, but anyway, so Marsha is doing this scene with Luke's trench run to blow up the Death Star. And Kaminsky wrote that, quote, Marsha had reordered the shots almost from the ground up, trying to build tension lacking in the original scripted sequence. She warned George, if the audience doesn't cheer when Han Solo comes in at the last second in the Millennium Falcon to help Luke when he's being chased by Darth Vader. The whole picture doesn't work. And that's so true. That is the ultimate stand up and cheer moment. Oh, yeah. Because it ties so much together. I mean, you've got beloved character Han Solo does what you wanted him to do. He does the the right right thing thing. and he comes back. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. You've got all the tension of like, oh, my God, Luke's about to blow up the Death Star. And then he gets it at the last second. That's awesome. You've got him being chased down by Darth Vader, like Mm -hmm. the scariest villain of all time, and he's almost going to die, and then boom, something happens. It's so much at one moment. Well, and he uses the Force instead of his... And he uses the Force instead of his... He's turned off his tracking computer. (laughs) Is everything okay? Is everything okay? (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Which is not an acceptable answer. I know, right? The general would be like, "Mm, put it back on. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm using my magic. What? (laughs) you imagine? I'd be like, well, we're all dead. Well, anyway, nice knowing y'all. But no, it's so cool that Marsha pieced that together because that moment, it really does make Star Wars work. Right. And I, I like that story because, for, first of all, it was Marsha explaining, we need a catharsis yeah. in this film. Yeah. This is an exciting thing. And we want people to have an emotional reaction right. to all of this stuff, not just like that was a really cool battle sequence. Right. It has to feel good that they're winning. But also, yeah, Kaminsky was like, apparently the original way it's written and the way that they shot it was surprisingly very unsatisfying and mm. kind of boring. And so she straight up had to create tension that was never meant to be there, kind of. <laughs> it wasn't like in the that footage. was never shot and never written. Yeah. She she made that up. <laughs> and then when you watch it knowing that, it really is quite a feat. Yeah, it's her and John Williams sitting there going, Oh, you guys are right. so lucky we're here. <laughs> All right, John. I need something swelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so cool. So Marsha, George, everyone else on the post-production team, they're working nonstop for months to try to get a cut of Star Wars done by Thanksgiving. Mm. But even in late December, they're still working 16, 18 hours, 20 hours a day on this shit. And then Martin Scorsese called Marsha to see if she wanted to finish editing his musical New York, New York, because the original editor had passed away. Mm. And she jumped at it. She wanted to work on something a little more artistic. And she thought George would be good because he had two other editors it was on its way to being finished you know she's like I don't, you don't need me yeah you know the same way you did so we're good but george was kind of pissed because scorsese at this point had a pretty bad cocaine addiction 
He ran around with a wild crowd. He's a big oh, partier. Yeah. Those eyebrows. Those eyebrows. They hey, like George, run around New York. Do another line, George. It's time. <laughs> don't stop do Get sleepy. Don't do it. Ah, don't listen to him. Let's go. <laughs> his eyebrows are his angel and devil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marsha, you know, again, she's old, she's really extroverted and outgoing and stuff. She kind of loved all that chaos energy and all that yeah. crazy New York filmmaker vibes. Mm-hmm. But George was a homebody. He's not a people person. He did not like all that. And he was kind of aghast at some of the stories that she'd tell him about Scorsese's crowd and his girlfriends and all the crazy shit he was doing. His eyebrows walk off his face and just go do their own thing. (laughs) Yeah. I saw his right eyebrow (laughs) doing a three foot line of coke. Standing on Robert De Niro's back. Whoa. But Marsha, you know, she, at this point, she's kind of sick of working on Star Wars. And she had even confided to Lucasfilm's head of marketing, Charles Lippincott, that if she ever had to work with George on a film again, quote, it would be the end of our marriage. Oh. <laughs> well. <laughs> and I think it's true. Like, sometimes he barely spoke to her except yeah. to tell her how to edit the movie. Yeah. So they weren't really being very married. They were much it, more business partners at this point because they were so stuck in the work. It can be really tough. Editing yeah. is a really difficult job. Mm-hmm. It takes a very, it takes a lot of focus and a and a lot of very uh, definitive imagination. Like you've got to see it and then you've got to figure out how to make it real from your brain to the, to the film. So, I, you know, in the few times, I've never edited Star Wars, but uh, the few times that I've co-edited with people and we've been sitting there in the same room working on our own part of the same project, there is like this kind of just silence to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it's a collaborative silence. I don't know. It, it can get tense. Um, it can be challenging yeah. and you can definitely feel kind of a coldness. Um, so I imagine that would be extra difficult if you were also married. Right. To edit something like right. that. I mean, we've we've been stuck in the middle of a production insanity where yeah. kind of the only conversation was, have you done this thing yet? Oh, yeah. I haven't done that thing. Well, let me do that. And then you can do that. And then yeah. we'll get that done. And then well, whatever. Yeah. And in and six weeks, like, who, we'll get back to our oh, marriage. Oh, you're also um, someone I love. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> How are you? Are you uh-huh. okay? Like, sorry, I need to talk to you like a robot for a little while because yeah. I'm not thinking about it. I, the emotional part of my brain has shut down. Right. I'm just trying to get through this yeah. stressful shit. So, yeah. yeah. They were definitely deep in that. We've had those conversations ourselves, I think, where it's like, okay, in in three weeks, we'll be able to get back to us. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's just like, hey, I'm not going to be myself for a little while because right. I'm doing 12-hour days on this project yeah and i know sometimes i'm is particularly bad at it because i'm much more like the george <laughs> than the marcia <laughs> um but sometimes we'll go on a walk or something and i'll bring up something about this show or something about work yeah some other work and you'll be like can we just like not yeah, do that I like i just separate. want to talk about anything else uh-huh. and like remember that we're friends and we uh-huh. like each other and <laughs> yeah. we have other interests <laughs> yeah exactly and yeah that's very helpful you need a marcia i mean you yeah. really do you, you need somebody to tell you like get your head out of that there's right. other things right so Star Wars screened, mm-hmm. but the executives who watched it totally fell flat for them. Mm-hmm. It also fell flat for like George and Marsha's friends, uh, except, of course, Alan Ladd, who had this vision of the future. He's like, I'm seeing I, I'm seeing uh, a casino and I'm seeing a spinoff. There's gonna, people are going to be sitting on their couches every Wednesday watching spinoff TV shows about these guys about that guy that guy who's barely in the movie Mm -hmm. he's gonna have a whole universe for him in the future he's got four lines and one of them is ah (laughs) that's the one (laughs) that guy's a star I'm seeing the the top 
this on top of Taco Bell cups, there's going to be like a rubber posable figurine <laughs> circa 1999. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> I had that. I had the Darth Maul Taco Bell cup topper. Oh, shit. It was dope. Where is it? I don't know. You it, keep that? <laughs> it must be at my parents' house. I, I'll bet it's actually in a box somewhere around here. So anyway, Brian De Palma, famous director, made fun of it for being cheesy and over the top. But Marsha was mad at him. She called him up later and she was like, why are you going to kick your friend, George, when he's down? Mm -hmm. He respects you. Why don't you go cheer him up? I love that. She's like, I have to ride. I need to ride on this one. <laughs> right. do, 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 Brian, what uh -huh. the fuck was that at dinner, you bitch? She said, I'm going to control what I can. Uh -huh. And what I can control is Brian De Palma's damn reaction. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't be a bitch. <laughs> So De Palma came in. He's like, all right, you know what? Maybe I can help. Mm -hmm. And he ended up rewriting the screen crawl at the beginning of the movie mm. with along with Jay Cox. Yeah. Co-wrote that with him. So Marsha continued to work on the Scorsese movie, New York, New York, while Paul Hirsch, Richard Chu and George were still racing to finish the theatrical cut for Star Wars. But she would still kind of pitch in when she could. Mm -hmm. All in all. They were both still so incredibly busy in May that they completely forgot that the movie opened at the box office. <laughs> That's insane. George Lucas recalled it. He said, quote, I was mixing sound on foreign versions of the film the day that it opened here. My wife was mixing New York, New York at night at the same place we were mixing during the day. So at 6 p.m., she came in for the night just as I was leaving on the day shift. So we ran off across the street from the Chinese theater and there was this huge line around the block. And I said, what's that? <laughs> I'd completely forgotten. And I really couldn't believe it. <laughs> George is like, oh, it looks like a movie came out today. I wonder what it was. <laughs> oh, it looks look like it's doing pretty well. Yeah, good luck. Good, good, good for them. Good for them. Well, I hope my movie does that well one day. <laughs> one of these days whenever it opens. <laughs> I mean, I think that's important, too, to note that she was working at night. When he was working during yeah. the day, they were total ships in the night. Like, yeah. they probably didn't see each other very much at this right, point. Right, right. Because he, you know, they're straight up, like, high-fiving <laughs> in the doorway. And I'll say, I think that's something that is... Um, becoming more of more household knowledge now in the era of, you know, social media when we're kind of getting a peek into celebrities and filmmakers' personal mm -hmm. lives, or maybe you know someone who works in the industry or whatever. But I think the glitz and glamour of Hollywood is a total facade. Mm -hmm. Everybody is working 12 to 14 hours a day yeah. in movies, and those are good days. I mean, I have worked 20 was my longest day on a film set, uh, and but it was regularly 14 mm -hmm. when I was on a shooting crew. And then while they're shooting, the editors are doing those long days. I mean, I've you hear about studios getting in trouble for how they're treating their editors, their post-production team, mm -hmm. for the deadlines they have to hit and the amount of work that they need them to do and the amount of money they're paying them or not paying them. Right. You know, like it is a brutal job. And even at this era when you're, um, you know, it's probably smaller teams at this point working with physical film. It's not like you can have 20 guys working on the same footage on different computers. Yeah. Uh, just an absolutely just destructive industry <laughs> that's so rewarding, mm -hmm. especially if you care, like if you're passionate, if you're the artist, mm -hmm. uh, it, there, I don't think there's anything like it. I mean, if, if that's what you love. Uh, but if you're not sturdy enough to kind of absorb what it throws at you, it can destroy you and it yeah. can destroy relationships. You see it all the time mm -hmm. uh, in the industry. People's marriages falling apart. People never seeing their kids uh, because it is such a time intensive job. Yeah. Fortunately, even though they were like so busy and everything was so crazy, 
George had planned a Hawaiian vacation for the two of them. That was their first time off together in years, and the timing of this was really, really good. Yeah. Because obviously they really needed to reconnect, which would have been true anytime. But it was really good that they kind of got away from California (laughs) right after Star Wars opened, because obviously it immediately was like a cultural phenomenon. Right. Um, Alan Ladd was like calling them in Hawaii every day, probably gleefully giggling <laughs> <laughs> like around 20th Century Fox. I like, I it. told you, you I bitches. <laughs> and he would call every day like, you would not believe the amount of money. <laughs> he was just like losing his mind. It's like, hang on, let me call you back. My wallet exploded. <laughs> And then, like, their friends would call them and, and be like, you would not believe the mania around this. Like, right. people are seeing it multiple times. The lines are growing longer and longer. Like, it was just an insane reaction to this film I, I that nobody Im- expected. I can't imagine how overwhelming, you know, oh. to, to get that unexpected. I mean, I, you know, I've, like, accidentally kind of trended a tweet now and then. Right. And it it changes your life. Like, your whole <laughs> week is thrown into chaos. It's like, oh, God. That is so much my responsibility. Mentions. Yeah, you yeah know. George and Marsha were like, my mentions are blowing up. <laughs> I've got to mute this thread. <laughs> you can't mute Star Wars. Oh, no, you can't. And so, yeah, they were stunned by this. Like, And again, they had seen the screening. Marsha thought it was bad, you know, that it had turned out badly. They were pretty sure it was just going to, like, kind of come and go. But it did not uh, do that, obviously. <laughs> and they were about to be even more insanely rich and famous. Um Partly because George was very smart. And after American Graffiti came out and did so well, people were like, you should really renegotiate your director fee Mm. for your next movie. And he chose not to. He said, actually, just give me all the licensing rights. Whoops. (laughs) So he did not make a lot of money directing Star Wars. But of course, he owned 100% of Star Wars. I mean, that reminds me of... Guess how much money he made from that. (laughs) That reminds me of Desi Arnaz yeah. going in and saying, no, nah, you don't have to pay me more. Just give me the reruns. Yeah. And they were like, no one's going to care about that. That's something I, fe- I find to be a little nerve wracking about Hollywood is trying yeah. to figure out where you're really going to right. do best financially yeah. with your product. Is it up front to make it in the first place? Uh, if it does well, it should be on the back end. But if it doesn't do well, it's better to get it up front. You well, know, it's just like a whole calculus. Tell you, you learn a lesson from Ridiculous Romance. If you're ever negotiating a deal in Hollywood, make the most outrageous deal you can think of that yeah. everyone laughs at. Yes. And then you'll you'll be destined to be a multimillionaire. It'll be great. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you know, they're hanging out in Hawaii going, man, as soon as we get back home, it's going to be like boatloads of cash, crazy opportunities coming our way. Like the sky's the limit kind of at this point. And so they started to think about the future. And for Marsha, all this success meant that they could finally settle down, relax their workload, have a baby like they talked about. And George seemed to kind of agree with her. He sort of was like, yeah, totally. I don't really like directing that much, honestly. I'd rather just retire from making movies. And yeah, let's start a family and settle down. And it's just going to be totally normal between us. Maybe all the strains and all the pressures that big budget filmmaking have put on our marriage, you know, finally be relieved. We'll be George and Marsha again. Just (laughs) two great people hanging out. Mm Mm-hmm. But in the back of his mind, George was actually playing with some very big budget, very high pressure ideas. And his dream of building his own empire kind of only lead to disappointment for the two of them. So I think that we should save that for part two and find out 
about how all that went down yeah. <laughs> later. He's walking through the grocery store and he's like, I've got to, I got to make something else. I got to build something huge and really put my stamp on the world. Something with this Skywalker kid. I feel like it could be more. And he's in the salad dressing aisle and he's like, Skywalker, Sky, Skywalker Ranch? Uh. Oh. <laughs> So and that's the birth of Skywalker Ranch. Corrections Corner 11D. <laughs> I, I, I. <laughs> Skywalker Ranch was not originally conceived as a salad dressing. Apologies to the Star Wars fans out there. I know there are several of you. <laughs> uh, whoa, that's that's really interesting. I mean, you know, whatever. I feel like we all know more than we need to about Star Wars, just in general, like right. in pop culture, you just learn things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I I certainly didn't know all this about Marsha, not at no. all. No, I I had no idea. Not she was all. she's been called like the secret weapon of Star Wars and yeah. stuff like that. And yeah, she she changed that movie for the better. Right. It would not be what it is without her. Yeah, and in fact, as was pointed out, because she expanded his tastes. He made American Graffiti in the first yeah. place. If he hadn't made that, he might not have ever gotten to a point where he could make Star Wars. Exactly. And get the budget for it and stuff. So it's kind of like, thank God Marsha was standing there being like, you can't run over me. That's what you like about me. Yeah. I'm going to sit here and tell you when this is boring or doesn't yeah. work or clunky or weird. Right. Or, man, you do not care about this guy's feelings at all. You need a moment to let that breathe because he's going to he's got to process this huge thing that just yeah. happened or whatever. Um, but I, I think I admire that about George because I I know how hard it is, at least for me, to take criticism. Uh-huh. I, I have a really hard time with it, even it's if true. it is kind and totally right. constructive right. and someone trying to help. It is it's like, oh, I didn't want to hear that. Um, but he apparently is just was very good at that, at, at like really listening to yeah. criticisms and recognizing where he was not as good as he wanted yeah. to be and where he could use that type of feedback and actually take it and use it, you know, and that makes you a better artist, Uh but it also makes you um, a better person to work with, to collaborate with, you know, and I think that that shows throughout his career that he's very good at collaborating with people because he worked with so many great, talented people throughout his career that it's like he must have been really good at bringing out the best in them, at listening to what they were good at, taking their notes and, and really, you know, letting them shine. Yeah in their way and not just like bulldozing over them because I'm George Lucas, damn it. <laughs> no, definitely. And I, I feel that I, I am, uh, I love criticism uh, as long as it's not from some idiot who doesn't know what they're talking about and doesn't realize that what I did is perfect <laughs> and doesn't need to be changed at all. Um, which you happens didn't. more often than I'd think weirdly. Mm. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> yep. What? <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> what? Uh, no. Well, uh, no, that's super exciting, and um, I can't wait for part two to learn more about these two. I know. I kind of want to watch Star Wars again and just think about the editing. Yeah. You know, because that's another thing, too, is that you're, I think you've said this before. Yep. Really, like, it's really hard to put together an editing reel and show off your editing because the point is that you don't notice it. Exactly. It just kind of is, tells a story well, and that's it. You're yep. not supposed to see it. And um, so it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, you, you really have to watch and be paying attention to 
I'm looking at how this is edited, yeah. how this is built, you know, how the tension builds or how the catharsis works. Mm-hmm. Or I really am only focused on the costumes. I missed entire lines of dialogue because mm-hmm. all I cared about were the details of what a person was wearing in yeah. the background or whatever. Um, and that's just something great about working with other artists is that they have that yeah. sense of going like, that's what I focus on. Right. So that's what I can give you, you know, in terms of feedback is some real expertise. Exactly. And also, I can't help myself. That's what I was looking at right. the whole time. And now I have to tell you, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I love Marsha. I wish we all knew more about her. Marsha Lucas, everyone. Yeah. She really helped make Star Wars the movie you love today, damn it. Right. And 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 the collaborative nature. I mean, of course, we can relate to mm-hmm. being a, a married couple who together forge creative endeavors. You know, like that's... Um, that's a tough thing, but when it works, uh, it can be. You can really make something really cool, so and that's cool to see that Star Wars. But you know, we never think of that as a a romantic collaborative project in right. any way. But but it it is. It's mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that was happening behind the scenes, and I think that we will uh, sort of see the, the I don't know the the aftermath of that or the the follow up what what comes next for them is going to be really interesting in part two mm-hmm. um, yeah. so stay tuned don't forget to check that episode out yes, coming up this week it's a whole other story and uh, very exciting yeah and a lot more film history being made of course oh boy. in those next in the in the 80s yeah. in the 80s because Jesus. after the first Star Wars George Lucas went on to make more movies <laughs> If you hadn't heard. So, yeah, don't miss it. Mm -hmm. Tune in uh, later this week. We'll have part two of this episode up. Thanks for tuning in as always. We love having you. We love telling these stories. Yeah. And let us know what you thought. Always. Yeah. Email us at romance at iheartmedia.com. Right. Or find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great. It's Eli. I'm at dynamite boom. And you can find the show at Redick Romance. And thanks as always for spending your time with us. We appreciate you and we love you. Bye. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. 
Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.